I want to ask you this morning, why did God call us to himself as his elect people? After all, 1 Peter 1.1 says that we are elect exiles. Did God call us, if you are here today, you are, you are a follower of Jesus, did God call you to himself so that you could live a life of comfort? Did God call you to himself so that you could live a life of conformity to this world system? In other words, that you could just uh, operate the way that culture says to operate. To think the way that culture says to think. Did God call you to himself to live a life of complacency? To say, okay, I'm saved, I'm okay, now I can just coast through life. Is that why God called you to himself? I think the answer is obvious that none of those reasons are why God has called, him to, called us to himself. You see, God's called us to himself so that we can now grow in our newfound identity in Christ and then live a life that mirrors who we are in Christ. God has called us out of this world system, out of the darkness of our, of our sin and depravity, to make us new creations, to cause us to live according to a new identity. And as we've seen so far from the book of 1 Peter, to live out that identity even in the face of toil, of hardship, and of distress. In other words, we are to daily to recognize our status. People all over the world are searching for a place to fit in, are searching for an identity to live by. And the scriptures tell us if we are believers this morning, if we're followers of Jesus, we have an identity that is safe and secure and that we can live out every day of our lives. We are to recognize our status as redeemed people, a people that matter to God, a people that have been saved out of the darkness into his marvelous light. But in order to recognize our status as the redeemed, we have to keep before us a perspective, a certain perspective of, in, in life and of ourselves. In this status, we're going to see from verses 13 to 25 uh, over the next couple weeks, this is a status that looks both backward and it looks forward. I can think of uh, no better example of this. It's almost Christmas time in just a few months, right? I mean, you go to Walmart, you think it's already Christmas time. And you're all probably familiar with Charles Dickens' novel, uh, The Christmas Carol. And Charles Dickens brings out the reality of this multi-directional perspective in his short novel, A Christmas Carol. 
You're all probably familiar with this carol, but in the tale, Ebenezer Scrooge is living a life of what? Of greed and materialism, right? One night, the ghost of his deceased friend, you remember Jacob Marley, comes to him to announce that he is going to be visited by three more ghosts. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And each of these ghosts are going to confront Scrooge with certain realities. The first ghost brings a reminder of Christmas's past and a life that, is, that was once lived. Brings Scrooge back to his past. The second gives him a glimpse into his current life, his, his current attitudes, his actions, the way he's treating people, his perspective on life. And then the last ghost gives a foretelling of what may one day be should he continue on the course that he has set. And of course, upon such a revelation, um, that last ghost, Scrooge assures this final ghost as he sees his gravestone. He says, quote, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. And he says, get this, I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons they teach. End of quote. And of course, you know the story. Scrooge follows through on this resolution. He lives a changed, generous life as a man who, according to uh, Charles Dickens, quote, he knew how to keep Christmas well. We see from Scrooge that he provides an example of a life that is lived in a proper perspective of the past, the present, and the future. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 25, we're going to see that Peter exhorts the believers in Asia Minor to live a life centered on their identity in Christ while being mindful of these same three realities, the past, the present, and the future. These saints, they, they were not what they once were. They could live by God's grace in accordance to their newfound identity and could have hope that their current spiritual realities that they were to place their hope in would one day be revealed fully. So the same is true for us. So we are going to see this morning as we look at our perspective that is to be based in the past, and then we begin this morning to look at our perspective that is in the present, we are going to see that once again, the scriptures in the book of 1 Peter are calling us out to, to live the key principle of the book of 1 Peter. We're going to say this together. Let's read it together. We are called to faithful perseverance and mission in light of our identity as the people of God. And as we seek to live out in perseverance and live a life of mission for our God as exiles in this world, we're going to look at what our 
perspective is this morning in these three areas, the past, present, and future. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin, Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word. Father, you have called us, we who once were lost, were without hope. Lord, you've taken us from that hopelessness and brought us to a place of hope. Lord, we're living in the midst, in the midst of great promise and yet also great difficulty as we traverse this world as exiles. Lord, we look forward to what you are presently doing in us and what you will finish in the future. Lord, I pray that as we look at uh, over the next few weeks at 1 Peter 1 verses 13 to 25, that we would have this multi-directional focus that is mindful of the past, mindful of the present, and mindful of the future. God, would you teach us from your word? Would you instruct us? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Steve already read the passage, verses 13 to 25. We are simply going to look at verses 13 to 15 this morning. I want us to read verses 13 to 15 together. Um, uh, I'll read myself out loud. You follow along. It says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The first perspective that Peter gives us in this passage is to live in light of, a, uh, uh, of the fact that we have been given a call to be mindful of the future. In order for us to live out this calling of holiness, we have been given a calling to be mindful of the future. Because it is in the future where the, the full reality of our salvation is made known to us. This call to be mindful of the future is, first of all, it's a call to hope. Notice Peter says in verse 13, he starts off with the word, therefore. So he's tying together what he just said in verses 10 to 12 concerning the salvation that is ours. The salvation that was prophesied long ago that has now been realized through Jesus. In light of this salvation, notice the one command that is in verse 13. It's not at the beginning phrase of, of, the, of the passage. It is the command in the middle of the verse to set your hope fully on the grace 
that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a call to hope. Peter has has already mentioned this hope. We talked about this in detail uh, over the past couple weeks where we saw in verse 3 that because we have been born again, we have been given a living hope. It's a hope that does not die out. It is a hope that, that continues just as we have been given new life. We've been given new hope. But the question is, Are we going to live in light of this hope? You see, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. So in other words, we have a choice what we are going to hope in. Are we going to hope in that which is immediate? Remember we talked earlier. Of the, of the inheritance that is awaiting us, that is imperishable, verse 4, undefiled, unfading, or are we going to settle for a temporal hope? A hope that is now something we can see, touch, feel, live after that. The only problem with that hope is it is unstable, It's like the foolish man that built his house on the sand. It could be taken away at any moment, and one day it will end. That's not true hope. You see, the hope that Peter calls believers to put their full confidence in is the hope of Jesus' grace, of God's grace. This grace, he says, will be brought to you at the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Again, just as Peter has already mentioned hope, so he has already mentioned grace. If you remember in verse 10, speaking of our final salvation, he says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours in other words the prophets in the old testament they could only anticipate and look to a a rescuer's coming to give his grace they didn't fully understand even the things they wrote but we now are recipients of that grace you see this is both a present grace and a future grace that we're to hope in It's a grace that is uh, uh, the term already, not yet. We already have received God's grace, yet there is more yet to come. In fact, in verse verse 2, Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, the hope that we are to have is a hope that rests fully in Jesus, that when Jesus is fully revealed when he returns again for his people, he comes again to this earth. God's work of grace in our life will be complete. And until that day comes, God is giving us a daily grace to continue in his truth, to keep going, to keep trusting, to keep hoping 
You see, this is an issue of where are we going to place our hope? In verse 1 of this chapter, Peter addresses these believers as exiles. Exiles are, are individuals that have no earthly hope. They're away from their home country. Sometimes it's hard for us in American culture where we have all of the comforts and luxuries at our disposal to imagine the refreshing call that Peter gives these Christians to set your hope on one that is coming that is going to give you what cannot be taken away, that is going to give you what you cannot achieve for yourself. I mentioned to you earlier that believers in other countries have a much better perspective of what it means to live as exiles in this earth. Because to follow Jesus means you're saying no to your surrounding culture. I'm going to show you a quick video. It's about four minutes long. We've actually showed this a couple years ago um, for the National Day of Prayer for Voice of the Martyrs. But I'm going to show you this video. This is what it looks like in other countries to live a life of exile for Christ. Hallelujah, Today in Pakistan, we Christians are second-class citizens. Though we have committed no crime, we are ostracized and banished to the lowest place in society. Often we are forced to leave our villages and our own homes. We cannot get good jobs. And we have no voice in government. What is left for us is servitude. Sewage work. And we know we will never advance.
We have a church. A place where Christians come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. To sing His praise. To study His word. For while our country has turned its back on us, God has not. Sometimes it is not easy. The loss, the injustice. So please remember to pray for us. That we will continue to live together in fellowship. That we will continue to see the joy of the Lord in our lives. And that we will persevere in our faith no matter the cost. And please remember, we are praying for you. from this video example, this little four-minute video, that this is what it means to socially live as exiles in community. To, to hear the words, set your hope on grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus, and to look at relief. That this is something we can hope for because we have nothing on this earth to hope in. That's making up the statistic as we go, but that is 90% or uh, that's well over three-fourths of, of the population of this world. That's Christianity. We think that American Christianity is, is somehow the reality across this world. You see, the, the, the issue that these believers here uh, and, and our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, the, the temptation that they have, which is the same temptation that the believers uh, in this first century as Peter is writing to them, the temptation that they had was to denounce Christ, to be able to have, temp, to, to be able to have some type of temporal hope or be, be uh, brought back into society. The temptation that we have is that we see hope all around us, a hope that clouds out the true hope that is only found in Christ. And are we going to have our form of Christianity and yet also place our true hope in all these other things? It's actually much easier to serve Jesus in, in the in the type of setting that we just watched. I think that they actually look at pity at us who have so much because those things call us away from Christ. So as we ask ourselves, are we setting our hope fully, not half-heartedly, fully on the grace that will be brought to us at Christ's revelation? 
Are we truly hoping in that manifestation of grace? Or are we sitting here kind of fooling ourselves that our hope is in a million other things? You see, in order to live a life of holiness that that Peter is calling us to live, we must answer the call to be mindful of the future, to say no to the things of the present that distract us from our calling that God has given us, to say yes to a greater calling, a greater hope, a greater inheritance that awaits us. Is that what you're willing to do for Christ? This call to hope, however, also involves a mindset of hope. The beginning of verse 13, uh, it, it explains to us what is to happen in our minds and in our hearts in order for us to be the, at the place where we can even set our hope on the grace that awaits Jesus' followers. In order to even do this, we must, Peter says, Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. The one command is, in verse 13 is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. What is to accompany this command is to have a mind prepared for action and a mind that is sober-minded. We first of all look at this, this call to prepare your minds for action. Literally, you could read this, gird up the loins of your mind. Back in, um, in the first century and earlier, uh, people would wear long robes. They would work in these robes. So what would they do to, to be ready for active service? They would take their robes and they would kind of uh, bu- uh, put it under their belt so that they could be able to, f- to move freely. They girded themselves up for action. Similar idea, though a different word is used in Ephesians 6.14, where Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. In the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the same word Peter uses is used in Judges 18.16, of men that were girded for battle. They were prepared. It's it's used even in the book of Proverbs in in the Septuagint. It's used of the wise woman, the Proverbs 31 woman. It says that she girds up her loins with strength. In other words, these believers were to arm themselves or were to gird their minds with the reality of their sure rescue and deliverance. So though they were facing, like what we watch, social ostracism and oppression and difficulty, they could call themselves to action in the midst of it by girding up their minds, being mindful that their hope is in Christ, not their circumstances. How do you need to gird up the loins of your mind this morning? I'll tell you one sure thing is we need to be in God's word to know his mind in order to gird our minds. We need to be allowing God's word to flow through us. We need to be setting 
priorities that reflect the hope of the gospel in our lives and not just we're making it through the week. On and on the list could go. You can discuss these things in your small groups, but these believers were to gird themselves all throughout the scripture. We see that in responding to the work that God is doing, Christians are to gird themselves and be prepared. In fact, all the way back in the book of Exodus, we're going to see, especially at the here um, in chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter and into chapter 2, that all over the place there is Exodus language. Peter uses words and terminology that remind the readers of God's great exodus of his people out of Egypt. Jesus has provided a greater exodus. In Exodus 12, 11, as God's people were to be eating the Passover, God says, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened. In other words, they were girded up. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why were they to do all of this? Because God was at work, and they were to be ready. Same idea is found also, the same concept is found in this second description of a mind that sets their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them. Their minds will be prepared or girded for action. And secondly, their minds will be sober-minded. This word sober-minded, it, it has, it has the, the concept that that they have a mindset that is not clouded by the tribulation, the difficulty they are experiencing. Chapter 1, verse 6 talks about their trials. Chapter 4, verse 12 says that they are going through fiery trials. These difficulties are not to cloud their judgment. They're not to have clouded judgment by, society, by society's rejection of them. In chapter 2, especially verses 20 to 22, we're going to read about some of society's rejection of the, these believers. They were not to give up, to, become, uh, uh, seek, to, to seek to become... Uh, compromise in such a way that they, they seek to avoid this rejection. Their, their minds are not to be clouded by their formal, sinful living. No, this is a mindset that is clear and alert in light of the present and the coming age in which they were living. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-8, Paul says a very similar thing. He says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having putting on, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Again, we see clarity of thought leads to preparedness for action. You see, the opposite of being sober-minded is to be in a drunken stupor. We are not to be so clouded in our thoughts as one who is drunken by the pleasures that that culture offers. One that is not drunken in, in the neglect 
of, of the spiritual realities that they possess in Christ because of hardship or because of misplaced priorities or all of these things. No, if we're going to really realize the hope that is ours because of Christ Jesus and his grace, we're going to have prepared minds. This is a call to live mindful of the future. Can I ask you this morning, when was the last time that you have thought about the hope that you have in Christ. About the, the hope that will fully one day be revealed and will be yours because of Christ. Are you so caught up in the present concerns of today that you've forgotten your hope? That you are living to find answers to your immediate problems. And man, I know in my life, and, I'm, and I know it's similar in yours, the problem is, is once you think you have one thing solved, there's five more to take their place. Are we like a dog that chases its tail around and around and around with no direction, thinking that they're actually going to catch it? And when they do, it hurts. You see, we're to live a life mindful of the future. But secondly and quickly, I want just to begin looking at what it means to have a second perspective. Not only a perspective that is fixed on the future, the future realities that are ours because of Christ. But secondly, we're to live in light of a call that is mindful of the past. If we are going to live according to our identity that we now have in Christ because of God and his calling, and that is a, a life that lives in light of the holiness that God has brought us to, we're not only going to be mindful of our future, we are going to be mindful of our past. Now what we are talking about here is not a loathing of our past, it is living in a proper perspective of our past that produces a present reality within us. What I mean by that is, first of all, we see in verses 14 to 16 that we are given a present calling in light of our past living. A present calling in light of our past living. Look at what verse 14 says. As obedient children. So in other words, let's trace uh, Peter's line of thinking. Verses 10 to 12, he's talking to us about the salvation that is ours, that was prophesied uh, from the prophets of the Old Testament. But man, this is, this is for us. We are full recipients of this. We are to fix our eyes on this salvation, which is God's grace fully revealed at His coming. His plan, His work in our lives will be complete. We live mindful of that, but we are also living today. So what is our life today to look like? And He says, He calls us obedient children. 
We are identified as obedient children or children that are characterized by obedience. Just as we see that our our future association with Christ in verse 8 is that that one day we will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. It's filled with glory. We're going to share in Christ's glory. So we are to be characterized in the present day as obedient children. We've already seen in chapter 1, verse 2, that God, we can call God Father. Verse 3, just as Jesus, God the Son, calls God the Father, Father, because of our relation we now have, because of Jesus, we too can call God Father. So here we already see a promise that, that, that as we've been identified and unified with Jesus. Now we've been brought, chapter 1, verse 3, into this new family, this new birth. We're now God's children. We have a place, even though we are exiles in this world system. And we are to be characterized by obedience. As obedient children, what does this look like? We are to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. So obedient children have a new conformity. We're going to see in verses 15 to 16, we are to be conformed to someone. But it's not to be to the world system. Same word is used in Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. It's interesting that this word passions, depending on the context that it's used in, it can have both a positive sense or it can have a negative sense. It depends on on what the the writer is saying. In other words, we can be passionate for the things of God. We can be passionate for the things that really matter. But there is also the temptation inherent in each of us to be passionate for the wrong things. And here the context is the negative. It is the passion that we displayed during our times of former ignorance. You see, there is to be, if we are followers of Jesus, there is to be a break that has happened in our way of life. In chapter 2, in verse 11, again, speaking of exiles, he's, uh, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. If you look at chapter 4, in verse 2, uh, uh, Peter says that we are to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If you're wondering what some of those passions were, chapter 4 and verse 3, it talks about living in sensuality, in passions, drunkenness, 
orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. We'll talk about those things when we get there. But there is to be a clear break from a life that is characteristic of those that are without Christ. We cannot be setting our hope on a future reality if we are living parallel to unbelievers. That there is a problem in our life if this is the case. And if there is no conviction by the Holy Spirit, we ask ourselves, uh, is the Holy Spirit in me? The ignorance being referred to is the ignorance of one who is without God, one who is spiritually dead. Same word is used in Ephesians 4, verse 18. Uh, Paul writes, speaking of unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated, that should be from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You see, what Peter says and what he's going to build on in verse, in verse 17 is that if you're truly an obedient child of God, not simply in word only, but in action, you are not going to be molded according to that which this world highlights. You see, we are identified as obedient children and we are called to holy living. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So if we're, if, if we're obedient children, we are not to do this, then what is the positive side uh, in, in contrast, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now we may think, if we are not thinking according to a, a gospel perspective or a good news perspective, because verse 25 says that these believers, and we as well, if we are followers of Jesus, are recipients of the good news of the gospel. If I am trying to live a holy life apart from the Holy Spirit in my life, then that's not good news. That's bad news, because I'll never be able to do it. But Peter says, you are a recipient of the good news of Jesus. Your hope is in him. You haven't seen him, yet you believe in him, you love him, you have joy inexpressible. It's filled with glory because you're awaiting that future hope. So therefore, give attention to be holy. As he who called you is holy. There's the gospel right there. A lot of times when we read a phrase like that, we think, okay, I need to be holy, so let me get, get out my holy checklist and start checking all these things off according to my standards of what I think holiness looks like. 
We go right to the command and we miss the statement that the scriptures make. God has called us. This goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. We are His because of the work that He has started. We are His elect. We have been foreknown by God the Father. We have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit to obedience to Jesus through the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. So God, in His graciousness, has called us to Himself and therefore we respond in light of what he has done. This isn't a, a I, I'm, I'm doing this my own. This is, this is a response to what God has already done. In fact, we see God's calling in chapter 2, verse 9. At the end of verse 9, it says, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our life of holiness is but a response to the God who is doing the work in us. In in chapter 5, in verse 10, it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Folks, the Christian life that we live is a life of response to the rescue that God has given us. It is a privilege to live a life that is set apart from the passions of this world, from the things that do not satisfy, from the schemings of trying to be self-sufficient, our own Savior. It is a relief. to follow in the footsteps of Christ. As he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter's going to talk a lot about conduct in this book. Our conduct is fueled by the reality of what God has done for us. Peter again grounds this reality, not just that this is something new that God has started with with, um, his, his church. No, this goes all the way back to God's calling of his people Israel. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, we're going to talk about that in chapter 2, the, 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 the nation of Israel was called to be a holy nation. They were to mirror God to the world. So Christians today are called to mirror the work of God to mirror who He is to those that are lost. This is the calling of God's people in the Old Testament. This is the calling of Christ's church. And notice in verse 16 it says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We see here both privilege, we're recipients of the gospel, and responsibility. As recipients of the gospel, we have been given a great privilege and a great calling to live 
set-apart lives. The phrase, be holy as I am holy, is used throughout the book of of Leviticus. Chapter 11, verse 45, chapter 20, verse 7, and verse 26, chapter 21, and verse 8. Here, Peter is specifically quoting from Leviticus 19.2. It says in Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In Leviticus 17-26, through 26, uh, is, it is known as the holiness code, where God is teaching the children of Israel how to live as God's people in a pagan land. And here you see Peter doing the same thing to these mostly Gentile Christians. We are to live holy as God's people set apart from the surrounding nations. Because if our, ho- if our hope is set on the grace that will be brought to us, we will be living holy lives aware that of what we have been saved from. Our former, the, the passions that we did, com- committed in our former ignorance. As we close today, Are you living a life that is set on the hope of the gospel? That what God started, he will complete at his return? Are you living a life in response to all that God has given you? You are seeking to live a distinct, set-apart life? One that is not characterized by the ways of this world system? We see this morning that once again, we are called to faithful perseverance and mission in light of our identity as the people of God. Our identity of who we are in God through Christ will be the only thing that sustains us. It will be the only thing that calls us to mission. Are you living this morning in light of your identity? Let's pray.